Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. One of the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic has, of course, been the massive shift from live meetings and education to virtual formats. And the longer term implications of this shift is an ongoing conversation in the continuing healthcare education world. The ACCME report for 2020 noted, in fact, that online activities engaged most learners compared with live courses and regularly scheduled series. And this probably isn't going away. But the shift to online education is itself not new in the United States, although its expansion has been patchy. And there are several factors that pose barriers to the development and implementation of online learning. These barriers include time constraints, poor technical skills, inadequate infrastructure, the absence of institutional strategies and support, and negative attitudes to online learning in some quarters. As a result of these barriers, as well as the impact of the evolving science of learning, the demand for instructional designers in continuing healthcare education is increasing. One study predicts that by 2025, there will be a 28% increase in instructional design jobs in education. But what do instructional designers do and what is their role in continuing healthcare education? My guest today helps us answer some of those questions. Jessica Martello is VP of Content and Editorial at EverFi, a digital education company, and she brings deep expertise to the potential of instructional design in adult learning. Join us to hear more about the key components of an effective digital learning platform, some of the important factors to have in place to optimize digital learning platforms, how to assess learning outcomes in digital education and challenges that adults experience in relation to online learning. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm Alex Housen, your host, and I'm here today with Jesse Martello, VP of Content and Editorial at EverFi. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Oh, it's so good to see you. I've known Jesse for a few years. We've worked together in projects past. And so it's really great to make this connection again and have the opportunity to have a conversation about what you're doing now. So let's start by talking a little bit about your background in learning and education. Sure. Yeah. So I graduated from college and was kind of 
not sure what my next steps would be. Majored in marketing and wasn't having a lot of success in finding a full-time job. So I got connected to a woman who was developing e-learning content for high school learners and digitizing in-person classes. And in working with her, I really learned that there was an industry around e-learning and instructional design. And through the time that I worked with her, we also you know, had opportunities to practice using different tools, to build e-learning, start thinking about different approaches and principles. And at that point in time, you know, I was such a newbie, I didn't even realize instructional design was a field. So she really encouraged me to pursue it, you know, more formally and look towards, you know, a program with a certificate or some other type of certification to just build some credentials beyond, you know, a few months of job uh, experience. So I, I did, you know, start looking for that certificate experience. So I started to get this more theoretical background around adult learning. So even though our work was focused on K-12 at the time, the program focused on adult learners. And after taking the program, I just continued. I really enjoyed it and found it super uh, applicable to any type of business and all industries, which was really cool. You could take it in a lot of directions, and I liked that. So I continued to pursue a master's in that field, as well as just pursuing other job opportunities. So you know, after working with her, I moved into adult training at a program for adults who were pursuing credentials in IT or project management. And then from that point, just continued to try out some different career paths around doing adult education in an HR setting. So training internally for a workforce and then started doing some government contracting where we created education for really specialized industries and paths. And just through all of those experiences, I started to learn kind of what I liked and didn't like to do around e-learning development, adult education, adult learning theory. Uh, And it was pretty cool to be learning in my classroom and then also living it on the job at the same time during those years. So more recently, I've learned I really enjoy the product space and started pursuing that. And that's where our paths started to intertwine when I moved more into a product space and was introduced to the world of CME. So bringing my instructional design skills into that world was really interesting because it's such a specific need that's ever-changing, ever-growing. And then where I am now, I'm focused on creating adult learning experiences and K-12 learning experiences. So I get to kind of have the best of both worlds. Mm. But yeah, that was kind of the pathway to get here. Thanks for sharing all of that. That's uh, It's a multi-path path, yeah. <laughs> if we can say that. And I, I have a lot of questions, actually. Sure. When you talk about product, what are you talking about? So I'm thinking of product in the sense of software as a service or something that, you know, an organization or a company is putting out to the masses uh, versus, you know, some sort of educational experience that's used internally for the company that I work for, something that is of quality design and, you know, maintenance and upkeep that we go out and sell to customers and that they subscribe to year over year. Okay, no, thanks for that clarification. So like a digital learning platform would come under that heading of product? 
Yes, yes. Okay. So one of the things that struck me when you were talking about the experience of being immersed in instructional design as part of your own learning and then kind of going into the work world Mm -hmm. to deliver instructional design, what are some of the things that you see that are different or similar between instructional design for people who are learning in a classroom, a physical classroom environment? Maybe we'll get back to that. Right. One day. Yeah, at some point. A physical classroom environment or a workplace environment versus e-learning. You talked about that right at the very beginning of your story. So, you know, what, what do you see as the main differences and similarities there in terms of the design components, I guess? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I think what you're able to do in designing some sort of educational experience that's in the classroom is leave a lot more open and flexibility to riff on, you know, the people who are in the room with you to have more, you know, conversations that might take different directions. And so you can think about that in the design of the educational experience and build off of that and leave some space for that and say, you know, open this up to a facilitated conversation uh, and people can kind of play off of one another. And I think that applies, you know, in a workplace training or some other forum, let's say at a conference, you're able to have that kind of back and forth between a facilitator. Mm -hmm. When designing for a digital experience, especially if it is something self-paced where someone is just coming into that educational experience, you don't have that kind of room to riff. So you really have to think everything out end to end what this experience is going to look like and, you know, try and bring some of the elements that are really great from the instructor-led live experiences, like hearing other perspectives, and bring that into the experience in some way where you're still giving that benefit to the learner, even if they're not experiencing it in the exact same way that they might in person. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that might support that kind of experience in an e-learning environment? Certainly. I think something as simple as in an e-learning self-paced course, giving learners reminders or stopping points to stop and reflect can be really Mm -hmm. effective and reflection upon what you've just read or an experience you just did is a way to bring what you might do in the classroom into that e-learning experience. Something else that we have experimented with and I think could be used across, you know, other digital experiences are polls and interactions within the course where you're able to answer questions and then see anonymously how people are answering and kind of compare yourself to your peers and see you know, am I in the majority or the minority when I answer a question in this way, you know, whether it's right or wrong kind of question or just around attitudes and beliefs. I think it's really useful to give learners that reflection moment to say, you know, well, what are the perceived attitudes and beliefs I think about? I think that others might have versus, you know, giving them that data to see and really take into account and use as part of their reflection. And are those kinds of tactics, are they possible within an asynchronous learning experience? So if you're doing a kind of course that self-paces in your own time, you're not having to kind of do it at the same time that everybody else. Can you still have that kind of interactive element where you see what other people are thinking and kind of responding to questions? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, depending on the tech stack you have available to you and how much 
you can invest into it in a product you can build in those types of measurements where you're getting live data fed in and can reflect on it and I think if that's not available something like a quick data snack like in 2020 respondents in this survey said x y and z can also be you know a lower lift and less tech intensive way to bring that comparison for a learner to say, you know, how do my peers think and what do I think and how is that different and maybe why and lead them down that moment of reflection. And I'm guessing that there are platforms or products kind of across that spectrum of possibility in terms of live data mm-hmm. versus banked data that, that gives you that kind of data snack. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I borrowed that term from someone else. Yeah, there are definitely tools out there that you can utilize and then you know you can kind of make it a hi-fi experience collecting live data or use the data snacks for a little bit lo-fi but still getting that impactful learning moment. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned reflection, you've mentioned comparison, kind mm-hmm. of key components of adult learning, right? What other things do you feel strongly about that have to be components of the adult learning experience, particularly if we're talking about uh, an e-learning environment. Yeah. Because we're all headed in that direction. (laughs) I mean, that's been a trend for a long time, right? You know, 10 or 15 years at least. But what kind of components need to be in a really effective e-learning environment? Yeah, I think, you know, you're right. We're headed in the direction of lots of e-learning and lots of growth there. And then, you know, the COVID-19 outbreak really poured some fuel on the fire where, you know, now all of us have done a Zoom meeting. We might not have done them before. But for an e-learning experience and for adults, I really think backing it up to the very beginning, getting to know your learners before you begin any work towards a program is so, so critical to being successful. And that is part of, you know, a training needs analysis, understanding what kind of gaps in knowledge are perceived and who's perceiving them. So you might have a situation where a business is saying our workforce is making these mistakes, we need to upskill them here, or we want to provide this behavioral education to prepare people to interview, or in the CME world, you know, something from bedside manner to actually putting hands-on educational information out about best practices for doctors and nurses and other medical professionals. But I think understanding your audience is just so key to creating a good e-learning experience and then can lead into how you structure that experience. So thinking about what they need to know and doing some research, you know, I encourage our team and love when we have the opportunities to actually speak with potential end users who are our learners to learn a little bit more about them, who they are in their experience, professionally, personally, and then also learning a little bit about, you know, what their learning environment is, even in as they're engaging with an e-learning course, you know, are they sitting at a quiet desk in an office or are they, you know, in a noisy cafe or, you know, depending where they are, that can weigh into how we think about structuring um, a digital program. And then also just taking into account adult learners come into educational experiences with a lot of context and knowledge and just meeting people where they are is going to really engage them in learning. So those are some really critical points, I think, to creating successful experiences. That's terrific. I do want to dig into those three things, identifying who your learners are, 
finding more out about their learning environment and meeting people where they are. That first piece, getting to know who your learners are, what do you find are the kind of best methodologies for really drilling down to the gaps in practice and learning needs? You know, whether we're talking about you know, a workplace environment or whether we're talking about you know, healthcare, which is exponentially more complex mm-hmm. than you know, perhaps one kind of self-contained organization. Yeah, I think you know, in an ideal approach, you're talking to your potential learners either live or you could send them some sort of survey, but I think asking them questions about their level of comfort with certain topics, uh, that can be interesting because you can start to dig into, you know, do they think they know but don't realize they don't know a certain area or do they perceive this as a need and are they, you know, interested and feeling like this is a training experience I really want uh, or is it more of a check the box I have to do this and that can inform just a lot of the ways you're approaching your content development. So in drilling into the learning needs and the gaps, asking learners to give some sort of self-assessment of where they are in their knowledge if they feel that they have a strong grasp and then using some other data points, whether it's talking with a program manager or the person enlisting your assistance in creating this program, like why that's a perceived need, kind of comparing the two. There's lots of great data points you can find in studies and research around different topics that can help inform some of the questions. So whether that's mirroring um, some of those questions with your subset of learners, that can be useful as well. But I think really digging into why there needs to be an education solution and confirming that to be the case can be another useful piece of the exercise. So in talking with your potential learners and talking with the program managers, you can start to better understand why there's a perceived need for an educational intervention. And I think also talking with your learners about where they are in their journey in terms of physically where are they in their journey Would they be accessing education through their phone or are they going to be in another environment? Those can help give you some shaping ideas towards how you're developing the solution. You know, you mentioned, you know, find out why there needs to be an education Mm -hmm. solution. Are there red flags that (laughs) tell you, okay, this, this is not really an area where there needs to be an educational solution, there needs to be some kind of something else. What would that something else be? And what are those red flags? Yeah, yeah. I think if there's an expectation to follow some sort of procedure and the procedure isn't being followed in terms of a standard operating procedure that employees or individuals aren't following, as you're talking with individuals and saying, so why don't you follow the steps? If they're saying to you, well, I don't know what the steps are, are versus I don't know where to find that information, you know, there might just be a simple cause and effect of lack of access and just not knowing where to find information. Once you have the information to follow a procedure, it's really simple and straightforward. They just don't know where to go. Mm. That can be a flag. Is it just, you know, people are super capable, but they just don't have what they need in front of them to do something. That can be a flag. I think Also, when there's kind of initiatives around certain areas that are influenced by outside forces, like saying, oh, it's, you know, financial awareness month. I think we really should put a program out about, 
you know, best practices for your 401k or something like that. It is a reason to step back and say, well, is this truly a problem or is this more like you want to have a splashy, engaging, you know, more marketing heavy uh, activity that's not really an educational intervention? You know, what's the goal and outcome you want learners to take away? And is it something they really need? Um, so those are the kind of questions you can dig into to make sure that education is the, the correct solution for the problem. Right. Yeah. Sometimes those boundaries between marketing and education <laughs> get a little bit blurred, don't they? Yeah, they can be friends. They can live together. They can be friends. <laughs> but yeah, it's not the same. <laughs> not in continuing medical education. Right. One of the other things that you talked about struck me, learning about the learning environment. And, and obviously you talked about the particular environment that informs how people are going to access the education. You know, how do you structure your approach to find out what's going on in the learning environment? And I mean, beyond whether people are going to access education on their phone or on a laptop or whatever, but the actual... The physical environment? Well, I was going to say the physical environment, but of course... <laughs> For many people now, the workplace environment is virtual as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess a subsidiary question there is, is that going to change the way that you approach your initial discovery methodologies? Mm -hmm. So there's two questions there. Yeah, yeah. I think to learn more about where learners are, especially pre-pandemic times when we were all you know, out of our homes and working in different workplaces and environments. That's something we learn in my workplace through, you know, talking with contacts that we have at different businesses. You know, are your employees working at a desk? Are they all sharing one computer because they work at a cash register and then they have to each take turns using the shared computer to access mm. The course for themselves, like one at a time. For a student learner, for younger learners, are they in a classroom that doesn't have great Wi-Fi? And that can apply for adult learners too. Right. You know, are they working in a remote setting where Wi-Fi or high-speed internet isn't available? So digging into questions there, and that can be accessed, you know, through a program manager, through talking to a learner, and you know, you can find people through connections. You can send out surveys. You can enlist the help of other groups who can put you in touch with some of the key people you would like to speak to. But I think just starting to have those conversations about describing your day-to-day can unlock more information that can be really useful about what environment they're in. Are they interrupted a lot? Do they really have an hour blocked Mm. during the day? You know, more and more questions you can add on and lead on as you kind of build that picture in your mind of where they are and what kind of constraints they're working within. And how do you use all that information to structure e-learning content and delivery? Yeah, I think for something as clear as we don't have great Wi-Fi or high-speed internet, that's giving the ability to download supporting materials that contain a lot of information but aren't the full digital experience and being really thoughtful and judicious with using video or other types of multimedia that eat up the internet uh, Wi-Fi. And if you're thinking about learners in a, a physical environment who aren't tied to a desk and have a personal laptop, thinking, well, if you know 40 people have to share one computer, we should make this really brief, really focus on keeping it short, really focus on making sure the platform is easy for learners to come in and out of and swap their accounts. If we know they're interrupted often, being thoughtful about 
how the e-learning experience kind of marks your progress and can save your progress and putting a lot of thought into the content itself to call back to something that you learned previously in another module or even a few pages ago and just giving easy access to calling back some of that information if a learner isn't able to sit and give a dedicated, you know, 30, 60 minute block of time. So those are just some of the little threads that we start to pull on and think like, hmm, this can really inform the design and still gives a great useful experience at the end that'll better fit their needs. You build in that reinforcement as well. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. What about assessing educational outcomes and outcomes specifically that impact behavior is as you know, because you've worked in continuing medical education, mm-hmm. a huge issue in this field. What do you see as some of the best practices for assessing outcomes, you know, in an e-learning context? Yeah, we use a tool that's called an intervention map in terms of, you know, changing behavior as an ultimate goal. And so when doing your training needs analysis, as you're starting to form this e-learning course experience You always want to start with the end in mind. What are the outcomes you want learners to take away? If that's some sort of behavioral change as your ultimate takeaway, you start by writing that down and mapping backwards with objective type language, how you're going to get your learner there and kind of build a scaffolded approach of to get to a behavior change. I might need to learn something new. I need to apply some different use of attitude and behavior. I need to learn more about my peers to norm some of my behaviors and understand, you know, everyone is washing their hands for 90 seconds. I should wash my hands for 90 seconds too, or something like that, thinking of COVID. And then building up to that, I think just putting together a plan of the objectives you need to get to some sort of behavior. So you do all of that up front. You're developing content, you're building activities in an e-learning context around supporting each of those steps to make sure your learners can get to those objectives. So by the end, you've given them some sort of interaction or information or experience where they've addressed each of those needs. But in terms of assessing, you know, you've given them everything they need in terms of information. We like to use pre and post surveys, so not just assessments for knowledge gain, but Uh, surveys around attitudes and beliefs and planned behavior like I will do this differently next time I agree or disagree and we like to use that before and after the course experience and something that I think can be useful as well as to do interstitial surveys and sending out some sort of surveying mechanism to again ask the learner to answer those same questions but 30 days after they've taken the training or 90 days after that to keep it front of mind for them and to really get good data around have they truly changed that and using that data to inform and iterate your approach. I think behavioral change is the loftiest but can be most important or one of the most important outcomes that you seek to change and I think it just helps to break down how you plan to teach that into smaller pieces and then assess against the pieces that you use to get there and then doing some follow-up. That's a great response and I think probably reflects when you look across the suite of 
educational interventions within continuing medical education, we certainly see a lot of the things that you've talked about. But you're right, behavioural changes, it's the golden goose. It's, mm-hmm. it's the thing that, you know, everybody's aiming for. Can you share any examples where you've really seen behavioural change through e-learning in particular, but any other kind of educational intervention? Yeah, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I think the best feedback that we get from learners that I I will say, you know, in my eyes, I take that as, you know, changing behavior of one person. We do a lot of education around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, that is all about building not just knowledge, but skills and behaviors and attitudes that support, Mm -hmm. you know, a healthy workplace or a healthy campus environment or a healthy classroom. I mean, that applies everywhere to just give people respect Mm -hmm. and be thoughtful about, you know, differences and approach that tactfully. So some of the feedback we've received on various courses that we've put out is, you know, people having an aha moment of self-awareness, realizing they might say phrases or make jokes or just, you know, make comments, not fully grasping that they were saying or doing something that could have been perceived as, you know, inappropriate or just, you know, offensive or questionable, you know, kind of on the spectrum of (laughs) where that falls. But I think what helps them have that moment and recognize it, care and make a change or say, next time I'm not going to phrase a question that way or whatever that change is for them personally is to give a lot of examples, scenarios and situations in the content where we try and get as close to real life and believable dialogue and behaviors so that a learner can see themselves in the content, whether Mm -hmm. they're on kind of the correct or incorrect side of the behavior. It's a safe place to really see, oh my gosh, I've said this, like, I didn't realize that could be taken that way. But here I can um, recognize that I've made a mistake. And I care now enough to make a change and be more cognizant about how I carry myself or the language I use. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. I really I love what you're saying about, you know, having a safe place to test those things. One of the podcasts I listen to is On Being with Krista Tippett, and she was interviewing Ariel Berger, who is a Jewish scholar and artist. And he was they were talking about learning and talking about change and behavioral change. And he was saying that the key moments of change for him have always been when he's challenged but challenged in a way that provides the opportunity to explore what it is that you're resisting mm-hmm. in your your response to what you're being challenged about. And so in order to get to that change, you really do need that safe space. Absolutely. To think things through and to develop that awareness and acknowledgement that, oh, yeah, I'm not doing this the right way. Right. I'm not approaching this the right way. I really have some work to do here. And I think sometimes so much of our education is not really providing, certainly in continuing education, not necessarily providing those moments of challenge that we all need. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another reason that e-learning can be a great medium for education is to feel those challenges and make mistakes in a place where only you know that and that's okay. And you can really take the time you need to think about that. Yeah, that's great. Um, Just to kind of wrap up, because you've shared a lot of really helpful detail. Two questions, I guess. What would you recommend 
as kind of best practices in designing e-learning education that is effective, you know, for adults working in complex areas like healthcare. Yeah, for designing those types of courses for complex subject area, again, just starting with the end in mind is going to be key to making sure you're solving your learner's needs, doing your research about who your learners are, doing testing along the way with your learners. And a great and very reassuring principle is just the rule of five. You can test with five people and get enough feedback that it will provide you with some insights to adjust and iterate. I think it is important to give yourself the space in your time to do some testing and iteration with your learners, whether it's putting language in front of them and interaction or an activity and just hearing what they think, if it falls flat, if they didn't understand how to use it and using that to inform the design of your course. I think with really complex topic areas, being mindful of giving learners just little bite-sized pieces of information and practice, kind of give a little knowledge, let them apply it, and then doing some knowledge checks along the way less frequently than maybe knowledge and application, but making sure they can track their own progress through that experience are just some of the ways you can start to build up to a more complex experience and really carrying the chunking forward, giving an hour session or less on something, and then combining that with a library or a suite of, you know, maybe five total hours, but being mindful about breaking things into pieces so that people can, at their own pace, kind of master step one before step two um, without feeling the pressure to move through the entire thing, you know, too quickly. Yeah, I haven't heard about the rule of five before. Is that something that is particular to the approach of instructional design? The rule of five is something I've learned from my colleagues who work in UX or user experience. I was just going to say, yeah, it sounds like user experience, yeah. Yeah, and so as you think about instructional design through the lens of learner experience, just like a UX designer is creating the environment that the e-learning is living in or a platform experience. We borrow a lot of principles from UX and uh, rule of five is just one of them that works just as well for us too. That's interesting because, uh, you know, I think UX is a pretty borrowed discipline. Yeah. You know, in the yeah. sense that the, the UX is borrowed from, you know, pretty much everyone. Yes. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of crossover between UX and learner design, I imagine. Uh, somebody's going to complain about that, I'm sure, that I'm, I'm mischaracterizing <laughs> UX. And we have a UX researcher in our house. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> Apologies to UX researchers out there. Uh, final question. Challenges that you see consistently kind of popping up in the design and delivery of e-learning? You know, plenty, just like every industry, there's so many. I think e-learning, it's really interesting to me that a lot of times we are really happy with ourselves if we've pretty much digitized a textbook, but haven't taken it that step further of using the benefit of having a digital experience and all the flexibility that can lend in terms of collecting and sharing data points, more interactive elements on your screen than just scrolling through text or manipulating text in different ways, but essentially just reading 
a textbook in a digital medium. I think that's a, a tough balance to strike and an investment of time, but can be well worth it. I think also when developing content for e-learning experiences, brevity can be really key and really essential. And like I've said a couple of times, just focusing on creating chunking learning experiences and small bite-sized pieces of information. And then as you're going through reviews or you know having other stakeholders look at content, it tends to expand and become more verbose. Um, but I think really aiming to keep the content you're showing on screen at one time really, really tight and small and just mm-hmm. knowing you have endless pages you could fill potentially is another kind of balancing act that I, I run into in all of our projects where we really have to trim back or mm-hmm. rethink how we're presenting content so it's not just a lot in your face, which you know is just two of the challenges, I think, <laughs> in many projects but are universal yeah, pretty key challenges. How how do we highlight? There's another question because everything you say is is interesting to me. How do we move beyond the text? Because we're locked into text. Yeah. I mean, I think text is important. I'm a writer. Me too. <laughs> I'm a reader. Yeah. How do we move beyond text in that e-learning environment? Yeah, I think going back to what's interesting to learners, giving them what they need to know and striking a fair balance. So thinking about how adults find the answer to a question they need today. They might Google it and they're willing to read, you know, a few lines or if they need a little more detail, they're willing to invest more time in reading more and digging in more. So I think just being conscious about how invested is your learner going to be in this piece of information and how critical is it for the learning experience can help you find that fine line between like, I'm going to give you a lot of information. And I think that'll go over well, because you really will be interested and want to know all the details Mm -hmm. versus something you could skim over and just being happy leaving it at that, because that's going to give the learners exactly what they need. And then also thinking about where there's words, you know, could we use some sort of multimedia, whether it's video. Podcast, I think, is incredible because you can use it on the go. Finding other ways to take your text and put some some entertainment behind it really is effective. Because like you said, you read for pleasure. We all can enjoy reading. So what's what's to say we can't make our e-learning experiences, you know, kind of mimic that as much as possible. And then, you know, you're getting some education in there as well. It's interesting to me how many people on the podcast so far have talked about learning should be fun, work should be fun, pleasure, find the pleasure Mm -hmm. in the learning is kind of a key learning for today. Yeah. (laughs) Jesse Martello, thank you so much for your time and everything that you shared with the Right Medicine podcast audience. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Alex. Have you moved your education online in the last 18 months? Are you working more closely with instructional designers than in the past? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing in this work and how have you met them? What topics would you like to learn more about in relation to the role and impact of instructional design in continuing healthcare education? I'd love to hear from you. You can email me from the podcast webpage or use the review function on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Thank you for connecting with Jesse and me in this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review on your podcast listening platform. That helps us to deepen our connection even further. 
I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Right Medicine.